Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Tuesday, December the 6th, 2022. It is currently 1.51 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. Now, it's almost that time. It's almost that time. But before that time actually starts, I always have a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of nervousness, a little bit of anticipation, because we are about to once again hit play, and review some audio, and that always leads to a little bit of fear, a little bit of anxiety, a little bit of worry, a little bit of anticipation, because I never know exactly what's going to happen and what we're going to hear, because if you remember, if you've been a listener uh, of this program for any length of time, whenever we review audio, whenever we review a sermon or an episode of a Christian podcast, I don't listen to it first, right? I like to listen to it in real time with you, hopefully to spark conversation and discussion, hopefully to to get you to think, and it makes it far more real, far more organic, because it's not like I've listened to it and rehearsed what I want to say. No, 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 no. I'm hitting play And I'm going into it just as blind as you are, but that can make me very nervous. I can fill you with a little bit of worry and anxiety because what's getting ready to happen? Well, in this particular case, and this is always the case, when someone sends me a message or emails me and says, hey, could you review this? I always (laughs) get a little nervous. Or if I tell someone, hey, well, I will review that for you. I always get a little nervous because then I start thinking, well, wait a minute. What if I say this or what if I say that? That could greatly offend them. It could greatly make them angry at me. And then I'm like, what was I thinking? But I, I, when people share things, I do like to review it. It's just I always know that if they loved it and then I'm critical of it, that could make them mad. If they hated it and I loved it, that could make them mad. So it's really, it's really a no-win situation for me. But you know what? That's okay. That's okay. Especially in this situation because I'm already in a no-win situation because of what happened on Sunday, and this audio that we are about to review, it connects perfectly to what happened on Sunday. On Sunday, I walked up here to this studio. I packed up the computer. I packed up all of my Bibles, my notebooks. I put them in my book bags, my computer bag. I put that over my shoulder. I walked down the stairs, walked to the driveway, got in my car and drove 20, about 20 minutes uh, south of Abilene, Texas to a little, well, it's not even a town, to to the middle of nowhere, Ovalo, Texas. I walked into the front door of the church. I went to the back of the sanctuary, set up the computer, hooked up the mic, got everything ready. And then we went live and I said, all right, good morning, everyone. We continue our study of law and gospel. And this morning we have one very important question that we have to consider today. And that question is this, when you become saved, does your heart that is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things, is that heart completely changed? Is it completely replaced 
Like what happens to that heart that is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things? That depraved, wicked heart. Now, 99.9% of Christianity says, no, no, you get a brand new heart. You, your heart of stone is removed. You get a heart of flesh. You, you, your heart is completely transformed. It's completely new. That depraved heart is gone. And now you have a regenerate heart. You have a, you have a transformed heart. That's how most Christians answer that question. And I put forth a hypothesis that not only called it into question, I denied it outrightly, and I denied it outrightly because of just the reality of 2,000 years of church history. 2,000 years of church history, if Christians truly have an absolutely completely changed heart, the old heart is completely gone, you're coming very close to claiming then, well, the old nature is gone. Now, some say you get a new heart, but you have an old nature, so it's the new heart fighting against the old nature And they try to then split us, like, as a person, now you have a nature and a heart. The heart is really the seat of your emotions, so then what is the nature? And it's this really convoluted concept of what, how do we even understand ourselves? Like, so I have a heart that's new, but I have a nature that's old, and so how does this work? Does the heart, does the heart have more power than the nature? Does, and it becomes very convoluted, but here's what I know. I would think if I have an ab, because basically Christians teach this. You have a brand new heart. You're now indwelt with the Holy Spirit. So now you have the power to say no to sin. You have the power to say yes to God. Now that sounds good. It preaches good and everyone will say amen. But then they will turn around at some point, maybe 15 seconds later and go, but however, you can't be sinless. But, however, you can't stop sinning. I mean, you have the power to say no to sin and yes to God. You have the power of the Holy Spirit giving you power. You have a brand new heart, but you're going to continue to sin. Well, that makes absolutely no sense. Because when you make this claim that I now have the power to say no to sin, yes to God, have a brand new heart, and have the power of the Holy Spirit indwelling me, right, giving me power, well, then the natural conclusion, the logical conclusion of that is that Christians should be basically sinless, and that would be what is most possible and what's probable, and that sin would be something strange and odd and weird and not, and something that we should not expect. It would be the exception, not the rule, but I've got 2,000 years of church history. I've got my life to look at, and you've got your own life to look like, if look, look at if you're even 50% honest and say, man, I continue to sin, have wrong desires, I have wrong needs, wants, motivations. It's sin, 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 selfishness, 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 self-focus, self-worship. It's all over the place. So how can that be if I have a brand new heart and a brand new nature and all the things that Christians claim? So I called it into question. And I know that I did. And I know that that sparked great disagreements and controversy. I know it did. I understand that. Well, someone today heard the uh, episode of Through the Bible Radio. I don't know if they heard it either in podcast form or on radio. And Dr. J. Vernon McGee, remember his program, Through the Radio, uh, they go through the Bible every five years. Now, of course, Dr. J. Vernon McGee has passed on to be with the Lord many, many years ago. So they're just doing the replays of of the old broadcasts. And, uh, well, today they were replaying his teaching on Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 25. And someone felt that this either is an agreement 
with some of the things I said or maybe in slight disagreement, but there was a correlation. They were connecting it to some of the things I was saying. So I said, okay, well, I will review this because if, if I, because in my mind, I'm almost 157% certain that there's no way Dr. J. Vernon McGee agrees with me. There's no way, shape or form. There's no way. I've listened to too much of his teaching. I just, there's no way he agrees with my hypothesis. And not only that, I don't even need to listen to Dr. J. Vernon McGee's teaching because 99% of Christianity disagrees with my perspective. And I understand that. I understand that. I'm, I just, to me, the whole situation feels like this. And again, you, you, you definitely, if you, if you, if you're, if you haven't been keeping up or you haven't been listening, please go listen to the last two episodes in our series, Understanding Law and Gospel, and you'll hear this very important theological discussion. But to me, this is what it reminds me of, all right? This is what it reminds me of. And, 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 and some of you, hopefully this will help you understand my perspective. The charismatic world will run around, grab some scriptures from the Bible, that seems to indicate that healing is something we should expect. Healing is something that we should, that, that is guaranteed. By his stripes we are healed, or, and all the other verses that they, they, will, they will look at. And see, see, physical healing is something that's expected. It's something that we, it proves that we have the power of the Holy Spirit. All the claims they make. And they've got verses that seem to indicate it to maybe some degree, maybe to some level. I, I think it's a wrong interpretation, but I understand they've got their scriptures. So they go around and say, healing is guaranteed. Healing is God's will. You have faith, you believe, you will be healed. And my argument always is, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. If that's true, let's take it to its logical conclusion. Then why does this happen? This happened, this happened. Why is nobody being healed here? And then over and over and over, I can prove to you clearly your teaching is in a complete denial of the reality that we all experience. So here's how I understand it. Yes, Healing is absolutely guaranteed in the atonement, but it's for it's for the time we enter into glory when we have a new body. There'll be no more pain, no more sickness, no more death. All of our physical disabilities, all of our physical suffering will be over. So yes, healing is guaranteed in the atonement, but it's not yet. It's in the future when we are glorified. That's the only way I can understand it, because in trying to say healing is guaranteed here in this earth, it's just, it's just ridiculous. It's not the case. Well, when Christians make all of these claims, that as a Christian now, because there's lots of claims of all the supposed power and the abilities we supposedly have as a Christian, right? Supposedly, we have the Holy Spirit leading us into all truth. Well, if that's the case, why is there so much disagreement in the body of Christ? And not only that, do you really understand what you're saying? If I claim the Holy Spirit's leading me into all truth and I open the Bible and I teach anything, then if you disagree with me, I'm like, you can't disagree with me. It's the Holy Spirit that led me to that truth. If you disagree with me, you disagree with the Holy Spirit. So in a roundabout way, you're claiming infallibility. And in a roundabout way, you're claiming to be basically a magisterial authority like the Pope. So that, that's a problem. That's a major problem. Why is there so much disagreement? And then everyone would be claiming that, the, well, I mean, why, what happens when this preacher says the Holy Spirit led them, leads them into all truth, and they teach one interpretation on baptism? I'm claiming the Holy Spirit leads me into all truth, and I, didn't, and I teach a completely different understanding of baptism. We both can't be right. We both can't be led by the Holy Spirit. 
So that's just, there's a problem with that. When Christians claim that now that because we are saved, we have the power of the Holy Spirit and he gives us that power to say no to sin, yes to God. He gives us that power to, to overcome sin and that we now have a new heart and a new, new, and all these things we claim, well, then you would, you would expect then what would come from that? Sinless perfection, sinlessness. But what do we see? Sin, 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 sin. So wait a minute. Now, I do believe there will come a time where, guess what? We will be completely overcomers of sin because the sin nature will be gone. There will be no more sin and we'll be like him. But not yet. Christians make big claims, but the reality constantly denies it. So so I'm the one who's always raising the hand going, well, wait a minute, if you claim this, then this should be the case. So which gets me in a lot of trouble. So I'm pretty sure without even listening to this, Dr. J. Vernon McGee is going to put forth a perspective that's different than mine. But I, I am going to review this because if the person thinks that we're in agreement when we're not, then I want to help them see no, 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 no. I'm saying something completely different. If me and Dr. J. Vernon McGee is in agreement, I want us to sit here on the air live with you in complete amazement and wonderment because I'm going to be shocked. Um, and hopefully, uh, hopefully, the, whatever the case is, I can just clarify and help people understand my position a little bit better because hearing my position has got to be a shock to someone's system. It has to be somewhat radical. And I understand that. I I completely understand. But I want to make it very clear because some people just get so upset with me. I want it to be true that I basically can be sinless. I want it to be true that I have now supernatural power to say yes to God and no to sin. But I just have 2,000 years of church history. Sin all throughout the Bible. And again, almost every letter of the New Testament is written to a church that's got a million problems. All, all they would have to say is, look, 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 every church with a problem, just stop doing it. You have the power to stop doing it. You can be perfect. And people say, well, no, you can't be perfect. Well, if I can't be perfect, then there's a limit to the power you suppose, supposedly claim I have, which then leads to all kinds of problems. So we're going to look at this. I have no idea what's getting ready to happen. I, have no, I don't even know if it's going to be connected to all of that. I don't even know if it's going to be connected to all that we did on Sunday. I'm hoping it's connected. Uh, the, the person who shared this felt that there was a connection. It may turn out that there is no connection, but I know this. We're reviewing audio, which all, always turns out to be fun. But I know my, my intro has gone 15 minutes. I'm very aware of that. But it needed an, an, an extend, extended intro because I want to make sure that if this is connected to what we did on Sunday, that you understand the fuller context. And even if it's not connected, you still understand the fuller context and why we're doing this. All right. So are you ready? Here we go. Dr. J. Vernon McGee, Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 25. Now, just for a further context, we, we have been working on the book of Romans now for, I don't know, three years, four years at Victory Baptist Church. You can find all those sermons on the Church One app. Look, uh, you can find our series on Romans. You should be able to find the sermons on Romans chapter 7. I would challenge you to listen to our entire exposition of Romans 7 and Romans 6, because everyone will quote those scriptures to me, uh, many cases as either to contradict 
my some of my positions or to maybe try to I don't I don't I don't know. Sometimes people send me Romans six and Romans seven, and sometimes I don't understand what they're trying to claim because sometimes it's because they haven't listened to Romans six or seven. In this particular case, the person is not sending this to me. Has nothing to do with our series on Romans. It has everything to do with what we did on Sunday, which is fine. But for our our understanding of Romans six and seven, you can find our our study on it. But we will see. We will see. Here we go. I'm. Yes, I'm delaying. All right, here we go. Dr. J. Vernon McGee, the late Dr. J. Vernon McGee, Romans 7, 7 through 25. Let's dig in now. Here's Through the Bible with Dr. J. Vernon McGee. Now today, friends, we return back to this seventh chapter of Romans that a great many feel is the very key chapter to the epistle of the Romans. We've seen the shackles of a saved soul in the first few verses. Christ not only died to remove the guilt of sin, but he also died and rose again that we today might be joined to a living Savior. And the Christian life is for him to live that life through us. Okay, let's stop right here. We didn't make it very far. Okay. This is, this is the never-ending struggle in 2,000 years of church history. This is a never-ending struggle in every church. This is a never-ending struggle even in, in, even in the realms of theology. And it really comes down to this question, how do we live the Christian life? How do we live the Christian life? What should the Christian life look like? Now, what everyone wants to believe and I, and I, and I want to believe it true too, that when you become a Christian, that you're basically, you're set free from the power of sin, from the bondage of sin. And now you have power, which means we are supposed to be, I mean, what, what, then what does that look like? See, that's easy to say. You can stand behind the pulpit and say, in Jesus Christ, you've been set free from the power of sin. You've been set free from the penalty of sin. You've been set free from the bondage of sin. And everybody's like, amen. And then everyone goes home and sin 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 and sin. So if I'm free from the power and bondage of sin, what does that mean practically? And then another thing Christians love to say is the way the Christian life is lived is not through your effort. Not through your struggle, but Christ lives in and through you. Now that, once again, everybody's like, amen. Okay, well, if the second person of the Trinity, the eternal son of God is living in me and through me, then what should you expect in the Christian life? You would expect sinlessness. That's not a radical expectation, right? That's not. Now, I, obviously it doesn't happen because people sin, 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 sin. Sin, like, sin is the rule of the Christian life. People can say, no, it's not. The only way you can convince yourself it's not is because you have to then reduce sin to only specific big sins, mortal sins, and then you place everything else over in a venial category that you really just kind of call mistakes 
are struggles. You don't really want to call it sin because if you are honest with your life, you've got sin in thought, sin in word, sin in deed, sin in desire, sin in motivation, sin in every area of your life. So it's easy to say, hey, the Christian life, how is it lived? Christ is living through you and in you. He's the one doing it. Okay, well, that's great. So what should the eternal son of God be able to accomplish? You would seem to indicate perfection. And you say, well, no, 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 because see, you can stop. So I can stop him? I can, I can, so how does this work out? Let's see how Dr. J. Vernon he describes it. So let's back this up again. All right, here we go. Christian life is for him to live that life through us. We can't do it ourselves. We can't do it by law. The law is a ministry under condemnation. And that's what Paul says in verse 7. Now, this goes down. This directly connects to our study on law and gospel. We can't do it by law. I completely agree. The Christian life cannot be lived by law. You can give Christians every law in the book. Don't do this, do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. It's not going to do anything for them other than condemn them. In fact, sin really, or or law, incites sin. It almost, it almost, it's like flames to a, to a burning embers. It bursts into a flame. It actually incites it. It actually causes it to, to become more active. The more law, the more sin. That's just the way it is. It shows it. It, it, it incites it. It, it demonstrates it, exposes it. So I, I believe the Christian life cannot be lived by law. I, I, it will just only bring forth more sin. I do believe that there is great theological truth for that. So we're in agreement here. Just what is he going to say? But there's nothing wrong with the law. Let's understand that the problem is with us today. Now listen to his language. And, and I agree. There's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is us. Now here's the question. What is the problem with us today? What is the problem with a Christian today? Is it the heart? Is it the nature? And how is nature and heart separate? Is it a lack of power? What is the problem with a Christian today? Why do Christians sin in thought, word, and deed, and action, and motivation, and desire? Continually. I'm going to read my translation here, which I do not recommend, but I'm trying to bring out the meaning. Follow along in your text. What shall we say then? Is the law sin away with the thought? On the contrary, I should not have known or been conscious of sin except through the law, for I had not known illicit desire, that is coveting, But sin getting a start through the commandment produced in me all manner of illicit desires. Apart from the law, sin is dead. And that's Romans 7, 7 and 8. Now you see Paul began his argument way back in the sixth chapter with this expression. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin? Now again we find it. Is the law sin? Well, in the first part of this chapter, Paul seems to be saying that law and sin are on a par. If release from sin means release from the law, then are they not the same? 
And Paul says, perish the thought. Paul will now show that the law is good. It's part of God's will. It reveals his will. And the difficulty is not with the law, but the difficulty is with us. It's the flesh that is at fault. And now Paul becomes very... Okay, now, so he's saying that the fault is inside of us. The fault is us. I agree. Now, I think this is important. We, 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 we may need to try to work on this for our series on understanding law and gospel. If you have paper, you may want to write these three things down, all right? Do we draw a distinction between three things? The heart, the sinful nature, and the flesh. How are these connected or do we separate them completely? The heart, the sinful nature, and the flesh. Now, sometimes Christians almost speak about these and somehow come some kind of separate thing. Oh, you get a brand new heart. The old heart is gone. So the old heart doesn't even count anymore for the Christian. Okay, but you still have the flesh left and you still have the sinful nature left. Okay, so now the heart is supposedly new, but I have these other two things left. Like, how, what is the distinction between the heart, the sinful nature, and the flesh? Are these synonymous? Right? Are these just different words for the same thing? Or are they completely separate things? And we're made up of like, as a person, we've got these three things going. We got our heart, we got our sinful nature, and we got the flesh. So then which is transformed, supposedly changed, completely new in salvation? And which one? Is only one of them? Is two of them? Like like all three of them? Like how do we understand this? This this is a reasonable question. Personal in the remainder of this chapter. Have you noticed that he begins now in this section to use the first person pronoun? I and me and myself. And they're used 47 times in this section here in the seventh of Romans. I appears 28 times, and this is the struggle Paul had within himself. He tried to live for God in the power of his new nature, but this he found impossible. Okay, so Paul tried to live for God in the power of his new nature, but he found this impossible. So, the way I think most Christians understand it is we get a new nature, but the old nature remains. So, so let's make sure. So do we get a new heart or do we still have the old heart? If we get a new heart, is, does the new, is the new heart the new nature? So now we have the new heart slash new nature, but we still have the old nature, but the old nature no longer has the old heart. So if the, if the new heart and the new nature are the same things, then the old heart and the old nature would have to be the same thing. So if the old heart is gone, then the old nature would have to be gone. So you, if you make heart and nature synonymous, well, then both the old heart and the old nature would be synonymous and the new heart and the new nature would be synonymous. So then, so then if, you're, if you're not making heart and nature synonymous, then guess what? Then, then what you're saying is I had an old heart that's gone. So I have a new heart and a new nature. So then what happened to the old nature? Like, 
<laughs> we, we need a diagram just to try to make out. So how do I understand myself? Do I, so I have, a, I have the new nature, but even in the new, even in the power of the new nature, that's not sufficient for me to live for God. So even with the, whatever power I get in a new nature, he's saying it's still not sufficient for me to live with God, for God. So then if I have a new nature and I have an old nature, then how do these two work? And how are these connected to whether an old heart or a new heart? (laughs) These are the questions nobody wants to ask, but I'm going to ask them. The law revealed to Paul the exceeding sinfulness of sin. The law was an x-ray of his heart, and that's what the law does. You put the law down on your life, and the Word of God is called a mirror. It's a mirror, and a mirror reveals yourself. If you've got a spot on your face, the mirror will show it to you. Now, you don't use the mirror to rub it off, and the law can't remove the spot, but it can show you the spot. But God has a place to remove it. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunge beneath that blood, lose all their guilty stains. Then, therefore, the law revealed the exceeding sinfulness of sin. And that's the important thing that it does. The law, therefore, was not at fault. But that old Adamic nature's the culprit. The admonition of prohibition contained in the law makes clear the weakness of the flesh. It shows that we're a sinner. And that's the reason that it's not important at all. So the Adamic nature, the, the nature that comes from Adam, that's, that's the problem. So do we still have that? Do we still have it? Now, if we still have it, now this is very important. You can't say we've been delivered from the power and the bondage of sin if you mean that to refer to we're now set free from the power and bondage of the Adamic nature. Are you saying now that, 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 that the power of that nature is completely broken? So if it's completely broken, then we should be sinless. But if it's still present, then and it still controls us and it keeps us from being perfect, then we're still in bondage to it. You can't say that I'm not in bondage to it, but because of the presence of the Adamic nature, because of the old nature, I can't be perfect. Well, then still it controls me. It limits what I can and cannot do. I'm amazed at the number of mirrors that you see around you today. They're everywhere. Department stores are filled with them. They're even on the street. I found out that when we travel around, now which we do a great deal, that one of the first things that my wife will look for in a motel or hotel is the mirror. How many mirrors do they have? And whether there's a full-length mirror. And it's amazing how we all like to look in a mirror and see ourselves. Out here in California, there was a test made some time ago I don't know just where it was, but there was a mirror that was put in a very public place. And the test was to see whether men or women looked at themselves more. That is, which one, men or women. And as far as I was concerned, they didn't need to put that up. I could have told them it was the women. But unfortunately, the test revealed it otherwise. There were more men 
that looked in the mirror than there were women. And believe me, I think that test ought to be run over again because that just doesn't sound right to me. But nevertheless, I accept it. We all like to see ourselves. We like to look in the mirror except one mirror, and that's the Word of God. You know why? It reveals us as sinners, and that's what the law does, that we are horrible, lost, awful sinners. Now, notice verse 9. Paul says, For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived, and I died. You see, it's a ministry of condemnation. The law condemns us, and it can't do anything else but condemn us. Now, notice verse 10. And the commandment which was ordained to life I found to be unto death. This is the tragedy of any person who seeks to live by the law. It doesn't lead him to life. Now, it's true that God said of the law, This do, and thou shalt live, in Leviticus 18.5, but the doing of it proved to be difficult. The fault wasn't in the law. The doing of it did not prove to be difficult. The doing of it proved to be impossible. The doing of it proved to be impossible. All right? Because the law demands perfect, personal, exact, entire, and perpetual obedience, which human beings are incapable of accomplishing whether saved or unsaved. Therefore, the law always condemns. That's why, that's why we cannot, the, the law is not what will advance us in our Christian life. It will only condemn us. It can, it can, it can show us what, it can show us our failure. It can show us our shortcomings, but it, the, so much of the Christian life is always lived by a law in, in the evangelical world. Do this, 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 don't do this, don't do this, do this. And it's about a million rules and regulations. And all it does is condemn, condemn, condemn condemn, discourage, depress. It, it, it just leaves you broken because you, well, you can't keep God's law. You cannot because it demands perfect obedience. It was in the one who thought the law would bring life and power. It did neither. It merely revealed the weakness, the inability, and the sin of the individual. It's a ministration of condemnation and a ministration of death if you please. You see, Paul put it in another epistle in Galatians. He said, if there'd been a law given that could have given life, then God would have given it. But you see, life doesn't come by the law, and living doesn't come by the law. Now, let me use this illustration. A new car can be a very good thing, but in the hands of an inexperienced or an incapable driver, it can become a menace. And it can become a danger. It actually can become a death-dealing instrument. Now, the fault's not with the automobile. The fault's with the driver. And the problem today is with man. Man is the one that's at fault. He's the culprit. Right now, there's been a great deal of discussion about gun control. We don't need gun control. We need man control. Somebody says, why, you know, a gun killed a man. No, a gun didn't kill a man. All you can do with the gun is pull a trigger. If you point it at a man, it'll kill him. But you've got to have somebody there pulling the trigger. And that's the fellow that does the killing. And that's man. That's 
Right. Okay. Whenever, whenever Christians talk about guns, I'm always baffled. They always talk about guns, but they always talk about guns in the absence of a understanding of the doctrine of total depravity. Guns don't kill people. People kill people. Exactly. And you want to put guns in the hands of people who have total depravity, hearts that are desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. <laughs> that, that like, I mean, sometimes it's so weird. Like, like we, we, we want to make some brilliant point about guns, but we make a brilliant point about guns utilizing usually a Pelagian or a semi-Pelagian view of man instead of a dep- I, what I believe to be a biblical view of man, totally depraved. I don't know how I don't know how Christians forget that. Like, let's talk about guns and forget depravity. No, let's talk about guns and then you look at it from a theological perspective. You want every you want to arm everyone who's totally depraved? I don't know. It just seems like a bad idea from a theological perspective, but that's a whole different subject. I don't want to get sidetracked on that. But it's just it's just sometimes we whenever we want to use an illustration about guns, I'm like, yes, you're right. Guns don't kill people. People kill people and people who kill people are depraved, which is all of us. The sin and the problem is with man today, but nobody's come up with any kind of a plan today in politics or in the ministry or in sociology or in any field today to control the man. It's all to control the gun. Now, verse 11, for sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it slew me. In other words, sin is personified again here and is a tempter. Sin tempts every man outside the Garden of Eden relative to himself and God. Satan made man believe in the Garden of Eden that God could not be trusted and that man was able to become God apart from God. Sin is like a pied piper today. It leads the children of men into believing that they can keep the law and that God is not needed. This is the false trail that he's been talking about that leads to death. It was ordained to life, Paul says, and he found that it led him to death. He says, I found it led me to death. Sin at last will kill, for the law did bring a knowledge of sin, and man is without excuse. And the difficulty, again, is not with the law, but it's with man. Therefore, Paul can say in verse 12, wherefore the law is holy, the commandment holy and just and good. And this is important for us to see. The problem is a human problem. Man is the X in the equation of life. He's the uncertain one. He's the one that cannot be trusted. Now notice verse 13. Was then that which is good made death unto me? God forbid, but sin that it might appear sin worketh death in me by that which is good. That sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. Now, this is a strange paradox. Is it a perversion of a good thing? Well, the commandment was totally incapable of communicating life. Man must have recourse to help from the outside because the commandment intensified the awfulness of sin. Now, verse 14, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm carnal sold under sin. This is Paul's statement, and you can begin here now this personal struggle of the Apostle Paul. And notice the we and the I here. 
we know. This was the general agreement among believers. The law is spiritual in the sense that it was given by the Holy Spirit, and it's part of the Word of God. In other words, that is an expression in Scripture. For instance, in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, the rock is called spiritual. For obviously, the reference is that it was produced by the Holy Spirit. Israel in the wilderness had spiritual meat and spiritual drink in this sense. That is, the Spirit of God provided it. But now Paul says, but I'm carnal. That means I'm of the flesh, and the flesh is weak. And the word here is sarconos. It does not mean just the meat on the bones of the body. This is neutral. This body of ours, it can be used for that which is good or bad. It's like the automobile or the gun we referred to. It's this old human mind and the spirit and the nature which occupies and uses the flesh so that actually the flesh itself is contaminated with sin. For example... Look upon the face of a baby. Then look at that same face 50 years later. Sin is written in indelible lines upon the surface of the body. The flesh is inert. It has no capabilities or possibilities towards God. It's Let's just make sure we 100% dogmatically claim and, and make sure we make this clear. That little baby, the nature is totally depraved. The sin is already there. 50 years later, that sin may be seen on the scars of their face or seen on their face, may be more evident, but the depravity, the depravity is, is inside. The depravity is inside of us. The, the external evidences of that sin only are proof of what was inside. All of our problems comes from inside of us. So that baby is totally depraved, not some like it was innocent and then it caught. No, it, the reason we sin all right, they say it. Let me state it this way. We're not sinners because we sin, but we sin because of what we are. We are sinners. It's in our nature. And that nature was there before we're saved. And that nature is there after we are saved. It's dominated by a sinful nature and the ramifications of which reach into the inmost recesses of the body and mind. The frontal lobe of the brain is merely the instrument to devise evil. The motor neurons are ready to spring into evil excesses. And the heart of man, it's desperately wicked. And he wants to do the things that are evil. And the body responds to that. And Paul describes here its pitiful plight as a slave sold to a Simon Legree taskmaster with a whiplash of evil. And here you have the struggle of a saved soul. And I want you to notice, for this is so very important, verse 15, and you have the old nature and the new nature. There are two eyes. Now listen to him. Okay, so he's giving us the idea that there's two natures inside of us. There's an old and there's a new nature. There's an old and there is a new. Now, as long as the old nature, now here is your options. The old and new nature are in conflict with one another. All right. However, as a believer, 
we do not have complete power over that old nature. So therefore, we don't have the complete power to say yes to God and no to sin because we are still enslaved to some degree to that old nature. Now, either you believe that, no, the new nature is there. And if we will rely on the new nature, we have the power of the old nature. And if we have complete power of the old nature, then you would have to acknowledge that sinless perfection is possible, if not probable. And if we can't be sinless, well, then the sin nature clearly has control and we can't, and we are still in bondage to it and we're still slaves to it because it limits what we can and cannot do. Somehow we have to, we have to come to some correct understanding in this because the way Christians think is you should just not sin. 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 You don't have to sin. You don't have to sin. You don't have to sin. Well, if we don't have to sin, well, then the only logical conclusion would be sinlessness is possible, probable, and likely. But that's not the case. I do. I am very happy that Dr. J. Vernon McGee realizes this is the struggle of a saved soul. Some will argue that Paul here is not describing himself when he was saved, describing himself when he was lost, but it doesn't make any sense because a lost person usually doesn't have the struggle. But it demonstrates that a saved person's life will be a perpetual, never-ending struggle that for the most part, we, we will fail and fall short. I want to make sure you hear this. The Christian life, a biblical understanding of the Christian life is it will be a never-ending perpetual struggle in which we will continually fail, fall short, and sin. The Christian life is a never-ending. It is a perpetual struggle in which we will continually fail and continually fall short. And any perspective of the Christian life other than that is just utter nonsense, and it denies reality. For that which I do I allow not. That's verse 15, the first part of it. Let me change that a little. For that which I do is the old nature, I allow not. The new nature doesn't want to do it. For what I would, now notice here the last part, for what I would, that is, what the new nature wants to do, that do I not. The old nature rebels, won't respond, won't do it. But what I hate, that is, the new nature hates, that do I. The old nature goes right ahead and does it. Do you know anything about that? Do you know in your Christian life, do you have the experience of this struggle of doing something, then hating yourself because you did it, and you have to cry out, oh God, how I failed you. I think every child of God has had that experience. Simon Peter had that experience. Let's make it very clear. It's not that every Christian has had that experience. Christian, every Christian continually has that experience continually, daily. Let me just, let, let's just, let's, we'll just make it very clear. All right, here, here we go. Here we go. As a Christian in the new nature, you should desire to love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. However, your old nature doesn't want that and your old nature will refuse that. And guess what? You never love God with all your heart, mind, body, and soul. You fall short of that every single day. You're supposed your new nature should desire to love your neighbor as yourself. However, the old nature refuses to do that. And guess what you fall short in doing? You never love your 
love your neighbor as yourself. You just love yourself more and more and more. You just may be good at disguising your love for self as some kind of altruistic love for others, as we talked about on Sunday. But but trust me, you don't. The, the Bible says, be ye holy as God is holy. In your new nature, you desire to be holy. Your old nature not only refuses to be holy as God is holy, it can't be. Therefore, you will fall short just of those three scriptures continually. Continually. 24-7. Experience. Paul had that experience, and this is his experience. He's talking about here. And there apparently were three periods in the life of the apostle Paul. There was that period when he was a proud Pharisee, under the Mosaic system, but kidding himself because he was bringing the sacrifices and doing these little things that he thought would make him right with God, but the law was condemning him all the time. But he's a proud Pharisee ignoring that. Then there came the day in his experience when he met Christ on the Damascus Road, and now this proud young Pharisee turns to Christ as his Savior but he still feels that he can live the Christian life. And that new nature said, I'm now going to live for God. And he fell on his face. And that was the struggle. And that was the failure. I do not know. And I completely agree with that. I think anyone who saved that new nature is like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to live for Christ. I'm going to do this. I can do this. I'm going to do it. And then you get all the Christians around you saying, you have the power. You can, you can, you can. But if you're even remotely honest with yourself, you're going to say, well, wait a minute. I keep falling short and I keep falling short. And I keep falling short. I keep falling short. I keep falling short. There's got to be a problem. The sad part, all the Christians around you will be like, no, there's no problem. You have the power. You've been set free. You have, you, you have a new heart. You can do it. And you're like, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, 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 I still struggle. It, it's amazing how all the other Christians seem to be okay with their struggle or deny their struggle or act like that they've got it all together. But if they were halfway honest with themselves, they'd be like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I can't judge my Christianity based off what I do because what I do is never adequate, always falls short. So then you convince yourself, well, as long as you show something, well, well, now you're just playing games. What you should do is constantly judge yourself according to God's standard, which is perfect, personal, exact, entire, and perpetual obedience. Should make you realize I've got a problem here because I keep falling short. All right? Now, I'm going to back this up just a little bit. All right, let's let him continue. And that was the struggle, and that was the failure. I do not know how long that lasted, probably not long. But he went through that period. Then there came the day, and we shall see here, there was a victory. Only he didn't win it, but Christ did. And he learned that it was, again, a matter of yielding. Oh, here we go. Oh, boy. Okay. See, he, he struggled just for a short period of time. Just for a short period of time. And then he found the victory. And how did he find the victory? He yielded. So, according to J. Vernon McGee, this struggle is only supposed to be a short period of time, I guess, in the Christian life. I guess it's only a short. Uh, look, the only reason you're still struggling with the things I want to do, I, the things I want to do, I don't do, and the things I don't want to do, I do. The only reason you're struggling with this is it's going to come down to dun, 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 because you haven't yielded. See, if you'll just yield, then you will do you will do what you want to do and not do what you don't want to do. Their, their, their victory is just around the corner. You can do it. 
Let's see if he says any more about how we're supposedly figure this out. What do I have to, what do I have to, do I have to read three books on yielding? Do I just wake up and go, I'm yielded, I'm yielded, I'm yielded, I'm yielded. Can my yielding overcome the presence of the old nature that still resides in me? Can I yield? So basically this is what it has. This is how most people describe, it's almost, uh, this is a common way to describe the Christian life. There are two natures inside of you. There's the old and the new. And guess what? The one that will be in charge is the one you yield to. So theoretically, if you will yield to the new new nature, sinless perfection is probable. Presenting himself and let the Spirit of God live the Christian life through him. He could not do it. Now then, it is no more I that... See, then he, he just gave you the hint. All you got to do is yield and let the Spirit of God do it for you. If you'll just yield, boom, you you won't struggle anymore. All you got to do is yield. Spirit of God's right there. So the Spirit of God is, is like, he's sitting on the bench. He's like, put me in, coach. Put me in, coach. Come on, coach, put me in. And you're, you're like, okay, yeah, look, this is not working. Come on in, Spirit. And then you're like, dun, dun, da, da. You now do the things you want to do, and you don't do the things you don't want to do. You can do it. Oh, but all you have to do is yield. The spirit can't do it. The spirit is stuck on the bench until you will yield to the spirit. Then once you yield to the spirit, then, then sinlessness abounds. Do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. He still had the old nature. And now he makes this statement. And Paul learned two things in the struggle. And this is something that many of us believers need to learn. Number one is... Verse 18a, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, this old nature that we've been talking about, dwelleth no good thing. In me dwelleth no good thing. Now, have you learned that? Have you found out that there's no good in you? Oh, how many of us Christians today feel like that in the flesh that we can do something that will please God. And then we find many of these Christians today that don't seem to ever find it otherwise, well, they become busy as termites. They're having about the same effect in a lot of our churches. They're busy as a little bee, but they're not making any honey. They're making vinegar and causing trouble. They get on committees. They're chairman of boards. They try to run the church, and they think that they're pleasing God. And they're busy but they have no vital connection with the person of Christ and his life and his death and resurrection is not being lived through them. They're attempting to do it in their own strength by the flesh. And they haven't learned that, as Paul says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. Let me make it personal. Anything that Vernon McGee does in the flesh, God hates it. God won't have it. God can't use it. And it's of the flesh and it's no good. Have you learned that? It's a great lesson. Paul learned that. The Lord Jesus had said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that's John 3, 6. And that's all it'll ever be. It can be nothing else but that. But whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. My, how wonderful that is. Now you are given a new nature. That new nature won't commit sin. I'll assure you the new nature won't commit sin.
when I sentence the old nature, that new nature. All right, so we got two natures. The old nature sins, the new nature can't sin. <laughs> so, so if you can submit, <laughs> oh man, this is so confusing. All right, so you have the old nature, it sins. The new nature won't sin. So all you got to do now is just surrender to the new nature and then you will never sin. So the problem is just you. All you got to do then is just learn how to yield to the new. You just have to yield to the new nature. That's all you got to do. That's all you got to do. Just yield to the new nature. No, nobody can quite tell you how to do it, but just got to do all you got to do. Because you literally have the ability to be sinless because the new nature does not sin won't do it. That new nature just hates sin. That new nature at night won't let me sleep. And it says, look, you're wrong. you got to make it right. Is that the way it does for you? And now Paul found out something else that's very important here for us to learn. He says in verse 18 now, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For the will is present with me but how to perform that which is good, I find not. The new nature can't do it. He found out there's no good in the old nature and that there's no power in the new nature. Now the new nature wants to serve God. Fact of the matter is... Okay, so the old nature sins. The new nature never sins. The new nature wants to do right, but the new nature is powerless to keep you from sin, right? So the old nature sins, the new nature doesn't sin, but the new nature is powerless and keeping you from sin. So the new nature has no power. Okay, all right. So, all right, all right let, let's see. Let's see if this is, it gets explained. Yes, that is exactly what it wants to do. But the carnal man is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, but that new nature has no power, and that's where many of us make our mistake as Christians. I remember when I started out, oh, I was going to live for God. That's when I fell on my face. I never fell harder than I did then. I thought I could do it myself. Those are the two big mistakes. There's no good in the old nature. There's no power in the new nature. And that's the reason that an evangelist can always get response in a meeting. He can always say, and I'm afraid 90% of the decisions that are made in our churches today have been made by Christians who've been living a failure as a Christian life. And what they really are saying is, I want to live for God. I want to do better. Anytime an evangelist in any meeting says, all of you that want to live for God, put up your hand. All of you today that want to come closer to God, you put up your hand. Those of you today that want to commit your life to God, put up your hand and come forward. Well, the minute they say that, they got me. That's what I want to do. My, that new nature of mine says, I sure would like to live for God. There's no power in it. And that's the mistake. There have been some people who have been coming forward for years. And that's all they've been doing, just coming forward. And they've never gone anywhere. They just go forward, that's all. And they never arrive. They never get any place. Oh, to understand this great truth. And Paul goes on here to talk about this. He says, for the good that I would, I do not. But the evil which I would not, that I do. Verse 19. You know anything about that? Verse 20. 
Now if I do that, I would not. It's no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Verse 20. It's that old nature that's causing us trouble. Then Paul says, I find then a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. Verse 21. And I'll be honest with you. Any time that you want to do good and you're tempting to serve God in the Spirit, have you discovered the old nature is right there to bring evil? An evil thought will come into your mind. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, Paul says, but the new nature, I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me, that is my new nature, into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. And you don't get rid of the old nature when you're saved, and yet no power is in the new nature, and it causes the child of God who is honest to cry out, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the power of this death? That's verse 24. This is Paul's experience as a believer. This is not an unsaved man that's saying, O wretched man that I am. This is a saved man. And he says, O wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me? He's helpless. He's got his shoulders pinned to the floor. He's been wrestled down. He's like old Jacob. He's crippled. And now there is a way. Will you listen? And we'll have to wait until next time to deal with it. But listen to this, verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. And if you try and follow the law and live that way, my friends, it leads to sin and death. And there'll be no fruit in your life. But when you see it's through Jesus Christ. Now he's given us a modus operandi. That's in chapter 8. And next time we're going to consider that when we come to chapter 8. Oh, this is great. This is all important. And we'll be dealing with it next time. I hope you'll be with us. And until then, may God richly bless you, my beloved. Okay, so, so the, uh, we have an old nature and the new nature has no power. So what we have to do I guess the answer is if I but but if I will yield to God and I will yield to the Spirit, dun dun dun, dun I get the power. Please note, I don't know why no one ever acknowledges how this chapter ends. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, with my mind, I serve the law of God, but with the flesh, I serve the law of sin. Paul does not end, the, end this with some great like, oh, I figured it out. No, he ends this with an acknowledgement of the reality of the Christian life. There's going to be a part of you, the mind, the new nature that serves the law of God, but in your flesh, you're going to continue to serve the law of sin. Sin will continually be a part of your Christian life. You're going to fail, you're going to fail, and you're going to fail. And then I love the next chapter. There is therefore now no, no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Here's the deal. In our practice, we're going to fall short. We're going to fall short. We're going to sin. We're going to sin. We're going to sin. We're going to sin. We still have a sinful nature. We still have a depraved heart. We're going to sin, 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 sin. Sin will be the ever, will be the, the soundtrack of the life of a believer is going to be sin. And to deny that is just, is just foolishness. You're going to sin. So what is your hope? Your hope is in Christ Jesus. 
in Christ Jesus, in your position in Christ, there is no condemnation. In your position in Christ, you are without sin. In your position in Christ, you are holy, godly, and righteous. But in practice, you are going to continue to sin. Everyone thinks there's there's some secret key. You'll yield. You'll just give to the Spirit, and then it will all go away. Well, then that means all Christians have the potential to be sinless, and no one has pulled that off meaning the old nature is still dominant. It still controls. It still limits. We're still in some kind of bondage practically. Positionally, we're not in any bondage. Positionally, we are a new creature. The old is gone and everything is new. Practically, the old is still very much real. It's still very much there. That's the only hope. We will review tomorrow's episode. We will review tomorrow's episode. Because then we'll see if he gives the answer. But he clearly is hinting that there's some secret answer. And it's always just yield. Just yield. Okay, well, all right. Well, then every all Christians should just be able to say yield. Everyone should yield. And we should all have it figured out. But it doesn't work that way. All right, I'll stop there. I, we didn't answer all the questions. But we... We will, we definitely added to what we talked about on Sunday. All right. But I'll just leave it there and you can struggle with that yourself. And there's far more I could say, but I'm not going to say anything else. I'm, I'm going to place that before you for you to work through, struggle with. Contact me, newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. We'll review uh, the, the episode from tomorrow when it gets here. And then we will, uh, we'll see if what answer he puts forth. I clearly see this going in a really, really bad direction. Uh, but he does give a, I guess, I guess he's at least honest with this much. We still have the old nature. Great. The new nature is powerless. Great. <laughs> okay. But he still seems to say that there's some hope. If we'll just give up, Christ will live the Christian life through us. And then I guess then we become sinless. But he wouldn't say that we become sinless. So then I don't know. Christ living in me... No, Christ lives, think about this way. I live my life, Christ liveth in me in this sense that I'm in Christ. And so my life is in Christ. And so my life has in my position, guess what's accounted to me? His obedience, his righteousness. So I live my life in him and all of that is true positionally. But in practice, the law of sin is right there in my flesh. I'm going to continue to serve it. I'm going to continue to sin. That's the only way to understand this is the distinction between our position and our practice. There's no secret in our practice that's going to just cause us to, that gives us the power to do what Christians claim we have the power to do because clearly it doesn't exist. All right. I feel like there's about two more hours of things we need to say, but we will talk about them more tomorrow. For now, you can contact me, newsif at yahoo.com. Newsif at yahoo.com. All right. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a great day. God bless.